Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the MetaPortal podcast. I'm Dark Forest Capital, I'll be your host for today and as always I'm joined by my good friend and fellow methodologist for the Metaverse Index, AG, or Verto as he's also become known recently. Um, we've invited a guest to talk to us today, we've got Arif Khan, he's the CEO and co-founder of Alithia.ai. It's the INFT protocol that you might have seen doing the rounds on Twitter. There's lots of interesting videos going around at the moment to do with it. Uh, we'll come on to that a little bit later. But they're basically bringing NFTs to life, and that's through a combination of artificial intelligence and generative media, and it's all built on the Ethereum blockchain. So, Arif, welcome to the show. Uh, you must have been pretty busy recently with your soft launch just the other day. How's it going? Yeah, it's great to be here, DFC uh, uh, and uh, AG. Nice to meet you both again and reconnect. And yeah, it's been an exciting time for us to get uh, the word out and have people try and experiment. And whether it's talking to an ether rock or bringing a board ape to life, it's been uh, fun seeing the imagination and creativity of people unleashed in uh, full force. So it's an exciting time. And uh, we have a couple more upcoming uh, uh, drops coming up on OpenSea. So keeping busy. Awesome. Well, thanks for making the time for us today. Uh, can we start off just asking you a little bit about your background and like how you came to be working in the crypto space? Yeah. So I started my career as most Singaporeans do uh, in the sort of corporate trajectory after you graduate in university. And I really had quite a few uh, different interests, areas that I had explored during university, uh, particularly an interest in philosophy and also an interest in, in reading, writing, uh, literature, many of the different softer uh, dimensions of the creative spectrum, which unfortunately, like in a, I think in a, in a country like Singapore, which is largely oriented as a bit more of a multinational hub, uh, a bit more of a place where corporate uh, corporations come and launch their regional offices. It's a very different sort of uh, bridge to for graduates once they study uh, philosophy or, or or any of the softer things. It's a little bit difficult for them to adjust to that world. You either end up in PR or communications or uh, doing some sort of uh, junior level marketing work, which which I think is 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 perfectly fine to start off with, but can be tremendously meaningless, especially if you're used to some higher level ideas. So my basic introduction to some of these uh, uh, concepts was through philosophy. And when I started looking at and started studying at uh, the Frankfurt School, where I spent about almost a year uh, studying some of the German philosophers, I had an opportunity to really think a little bit about how I'd want my life to be. But then when I graduated, unfortunately, like there were no jobs for for somebody who likes to think, right? Like uh, crypto was was barely starting out. And uh, this was uh, in early 20, uh, 2010, 2011, around that period. Right? So uh, I started my, my my job in the corporate world. And then later on, I received some good opportunities with tech companies, Web2 companies uh, at LinkedIn, and then another company that's called Grab, which is, uh, which is basically the Southeast Asian version of Uber. And I think around 2016, 2017, I sort of burnt out from the corporate uh, 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 gig and just running at uh, 24-7, always on, week in, week out functions. And that's when I really started diving deep, I think somewhere around 2016 into crypto because I had some friends who had gotten into Ethereum and they were telling me a bit about it. And I was obviously ignorant 
but I just gotten into Ethereum early on in 2017 and started reading and understanding what uh, Ethereum was doing. So that's how I sort of uh, got into crypto and, and, you know, it was like a standard transition from the corporate world to the crypto world. And it's a very difficult one for me personally, because I have such a growing up sometimes in, in Singapore, it, it, it does have a little bit of a conservative uh, risk averse mindset. And it's just sometimes a little bit more of a, of a cultural mindset that of course, right now the policymakers and innovators are trying to overcome. So uh, that was uh, the, the introduction to the, to the crypto world, really. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, it sounds a little bit different to, to most of the guests that we've had on before with a more philosophical approach. But um, what you've ended up doing with Aletheia is quite technical, especially compared to like some of the other conversations that we've had on MetaPortal previously. So do you mind just going into a bit of detail to kind of set the stage for everybody and, and explain what Aletheia is and what an INFT is? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. I think after deciding to go down the crypto rabbit hole i spent some time in in san francisco i moved to the us uh, i met a couple of folks um, that were sort of at the intersection of two sort of disparate uh, interests uh, areas that i had one was consciousness hacking which is you know oriented around um, back then i think there were it was just sort of at the beginning of like how do we quantify brainwave states how do we create peaceful states of uh, consciousness in our mind uh, how do we engineer enlightenment, right? So there were a couple of uh, different disparate groups coming out of Stanford University that were looking at that research, but also trying to build uh, contemplative practices and fusing those with tech. So that was one area of interest for me. Coincidentally, as I started interacting with them, a lot of them were uh, involved in the early days of um, uh, cryptocurrencies. And I had met um, through a researcher, Dr. Julia Mossbridge, uh, I had met a team uh, uh, that was working on the intersection of AI and and robotics and, and blockchain. And I joined SingularityNet, the company that is headed up by Ben Gertzel. Uh, I joined them as a CA. I later joined them as a CMO, and uh, we built out their AI marketplace uh, and helped them scale. And then, somewhat foolishly, just before the pandemic started, <laughs> you know, I felt that this would be a great time to start a company. Uh, back then, the, uh, the, of course, nobody knew about the pandemic. But towards the end of December, 2019, I felt like combining two areas of interest that I had, and two problems that I had acutely felt as a as a marketer, but also as somebody who's trying to communicate ideas, was how do we deal with the uh, synthetic media revolution that's coming and the synthetic media revolution really was just you know if ai can start creating convincing content that means either it's text-based content it's audio-based content or it's video uh based content right so text-based content mean, means like if you chat with an ai you are able to have an experience where it's almost it's almost like you're chatting with a human right so that's a there's a turing test uh, analogy that can be drawn there, but then there's also like audio-based content where if you hear a voice, it sounds, it's synthetic, it's fake, but it sounds uh, really human. It has the right intonation, there's the right pauses. Uh, it, it can communicate the breadth and dimension that a human voice typically would have. And then video-based content is where the without needing a human in the loop, you can generate synthetic video or AI-generated video that would basically... Uh, be just as good as a real thing. And that was sort of in the early days of like the deep fake stuff that started to come out. Uh, but I felt that uh, genuinely and very strongly that these technologies, synthetic AI generated media 
would need a complementary technology like um, like the blockchain to essentially provide a level of provenance and proofs uh, on the validity and reality of a specific uh, piece of content. Because if you are going to enter into a world where everybody and anybody can create all sorts of synthetic media or AI-generated media, what then uh, is the truth, right, at the end of the day? And so that's that's essentially one of the earlier inclinations or intuitions we had with Alethea. That's why Alethea is named after the goddess of truth, which is that there is this element of like, okay, if everyone's going to be really super creative in the metaverse and there are going to be these multiple millions of these identities floating around, which one is a valid virtual twin or a valid synthetic version of, let's say, Snoop Dogg, right? And so just like Twitter... If you look at what Twitter has done with the blue tick checkmark, there are hundreds or I think maybe thousands of fake Elon Musk profiles floating around uh, on Twitter, right? Like, And this is text-based content. And of course, people can take them down and some are satirical that are not going to be taken down because of uh, free speech laws. But you need that blue tick to provide some level of truth that this, uh, this account actually belongs to XYZ person, right? So that same level of blue tick that analogy carries across into synthetic audio, synthetic text, synthetic video, and synthetic identities, really. Uh, and so for us, the, the primary reason why we wanted to start Lithia was oriented around making sure that we could create this synthetic media, uh, synthetic reality environment, but have it be underpinned by a very strong property rights infrastructure. But when I first wrote about NFTs and, and AI, combining in, in, in the bear market when Ethereum was, I think, at $160 at, at the beginning of 2020, you know, people thought I was crazy just from the perspective of like, well, you know, not many people understand NFTs. It was a fad back then. Uh, to some degree, CryptoKitties had sort of uh, gained some awareness, but then crashed later. And then here was another complementary technology like AI coming in and you're trying to fuse both of them. <laughs> and so like that's that's essentially... Either you're a you're a genius scammer or you're like onto something, but you're too early and you're too wrong, right? And so like for many people, they felt that we were too early, but also that we may have been wrong. But that amount of time in the past two years has allowed us to really build a foundational substrate that has, uh, that like you've said on Ethereum, where we've been able to create compelling, what we call intelligent NFTs. So NFTs that have AI embedded into them uh, and these NFTs can interact, but then they also have a provenance or a hash, um, which is where things start to get really interesting, right? So, so yeah, so I think like for us, for Alethea, it, it really is a protocol, a permissionless protocol for creators, developers to create, train, and earn from their INFTs. And we think INFTs are going to be like the perfect metaverse Legos, where you would be able to build uh, with these INFTs and have them interact and they provide services in the metaverse and can transact. But at the same time, uh, you as an owner or a participant in this intelligent metaverse are influencing the direction and curation of the different types of INFTs that you can bring to life, right? And so uh, for us, this is the, the true north of the vision is to build an intelligent metaverse, one that is decentralized and the INFT is, is sort of the perfect uh, building block uh, for it. So when you first started talking a little bit about this um, idea in, in 2020, of course, it was too early, like most of most innovators suffer from. 
but now I think in the past uh, six to nine months or so, now that people have understood NFTs, they're now beginning to ask themselves a question. So, hey, what else can we do with this uh, really interesting, fascinating property rights layer that has been unlocked at a, at a global scale, right? Like what else can we build on top of this? And for us, that next step is to embed intelligence into it because then you really multiply the capabilities and possibilities of what an NFT can really do. Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks for taking us through that. That was really comprehensive um, response. I think that like, it's such an ambitious project, as you kind of touched on there, that combining all these different technologies together. And while it may have been early at the start, it seems to really be coming onto like, its own at the moment, where we've got, like you say, people are figuring out N- I- NFTs, they're creating communities around them. You know, there's projects every single day. And some of the earlier ones, now those um, communities are starting to turn around and say, okay, what's next? And and that's where Alithia comes in with the stuff that you're you're going to enable with with INF, INFTs. So you, you kind of covered it a little bit. They're talking about like digital property rights. That's the same way that we at MetaPortal see NFTs, like part of the open metaverse, giving people like sovereignty, the ability to own their assets in, in virtual worlds. Do you have like a simple way that you explain NFTs to people when they're new to it? Like, how do you explain to your to your friends and family? Yeah, the two parts there. First, I have to explain to them what the metaverse is, and then after that, I have to explain to them why NFTs like are a perfect uh, Lego building block in the metaverse. Right. So I'll I'll try and walk you through both, just from an analogy standpoint. Um, for the metaverse, actually, the explanation is somewhat easier. I always ask people. Um, whether they remember what they dreamed about last night, right? And whether they can remember whether their dream was in color or black and white, whether it was in first person or third person. Uh, And once they start provoking or confronting their imaginations or trying to remember, they start realizing that, um, you know, there there is this alternate reality that they had experienced uh, the night before. Maybe some of them usually forget it, uh, which is usually the case in our society today, where there's this entire dream world or dream landscape or dream verse, whatever you want to call it, that has been ignored, right? Like, But previous traditions and cultures outside of our present sort of uh, uh, secular tradition and culture have always valued the wisdom that comes from dreams. So I always start from there to explain the metaverse, because the metaverse is just an extension of our consciousness, extension of our imagination. Just like we have a reality in the dream world, which has certain rules and laws and like, I mean, it, it, it has a certain experience. Uh, a metaverse is, is similar to that by analogy. And once people understand that, oh, you're going into this sort of 3D-like environment, maybe you put on a device, but it has the ability to have immersive, interactive experiences and colors and characters and people and memories, uh, you can start looking at how that can expand out. And then when I tell them that, I uh, basically uh, walked them through, once once they've understood that the metaverse is an extension of our imagination, uh, and there are going to be many different types of metaverses, just like there are many different dream categories of dreams, right? Maybe maybe there's a certain archetype, but once they understand and understand that the, the metaverse is an extension of our imagination, the next step is to have them really understand who the dreamer is, right? Like who, where is this, what is the source of the dream and what is, where exactly 
is all of this being generated from? And for me, this is where the anchor of the property rights analogy comes in, just like the metaverse is dreamed to some extent, and this is somewhat simplistic, but like by the brain or by the consciousness of that individual viewer who's seeing that dream. Similar to that, NFTs are like the fingerprint or the um, uh, perfect uh, 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 tracking mechanism that allow you to determine the source of that specific dream, right? So uh, for me, the opportunity here is to explain it to people in a way that agrees with their present mental models. Of course, if it's somebody who is a lot more scientific, you can tell them about cryptographic hashes and proofs and scarcity and engineering, all of these uh, things that in our physical world and having that sort of scarcity engineered on chain. Uh, but the easiest way that I've found is once people have their own experiences mimicked and once they can understand what a metaverse is, then you can walk them a little bit through about ownership in the metaverse. How do we determine this and who determines that, right? Like does Facebook determine it or does a decentralized open metaverse where everybody can dream and everybody can create whatever they want to, uh, which model would serve humanity a little, little bit better? So I always try and infuse a little bit of my own philosophy when I try and explain this, but um, the general idea is that I, I start from the dream and then work backwards. <laughs> Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, definitely. It's easily the most philosophical answer that we've come across, um, but I like it. It's, it's not one that we've heard before. And on the subject of like NFTs more generally, obviously our, our vision is the same as you, like giving people the ability to, to own these things and like truly own them, like verifiably. In terms of them becoming part of what we call like an open metaverse and truly being like portable and able to you know take an asset from one virtual world or as you, as you call it metaverse to another like how important is that to you and, and how have you incorporated that kind of thinking into what you're doing at Alethia? Yeah and I think an open open metaverse is, is going to be a critical feature of our freedom as a species, right? Like it's it's the same thesis that we apply to our physical world. It should apply to the, I wouldn't say the, the metaphysical world, but the metaversal world, right? Like, and then that's where, that's where it gets really interesting when you have to uh, have certain values and principles that we uh, prioritize in our day-to-day -day as a society and have those values at least be represented or mimicked in some way, shape or form to create uh, uh, imaginary worlds or, or places where uh, we can uh, interact, transact, and actually create uh, economic value and create meaning for ourselves. So from our perspective, the open metaverse is an important idea, but open metaverse may be a little bit of a misnomer, primarily because um, we've deliberately chosen language around an intelligent metaverse because the Current metaverse dynamics and current ecosystems that are being built are largely closed metaverses that are, these are like the non-decentralized ones. These are the, the, the metaverses being funded by uh, large uh, tech companies. And for them, their mandate is really to make the interactions as intelligent as possible. So underneath each metaverse, whether it's Roblox, whether it is uh, um, uh, Facebook's metaverse, there is an AI engine that is learning uh, all of the behaviors that are happening in the metaverse. It's not very obvious to many people right now, uh, but it will become obvious later on uh, as these systems reflect. Just like think of like how, you know, at the beginning, Facebook started, when it first started, you could see 
and I'm sort of aging myself here, but you could see that the newsfeed was populated largely by posts from your friends or your or from your family. But later on, as as time wore on, as time uh, as as more and more people started using it, there was more advertising inventory of the newsfeed to be sold. And so they began optimizing the newsfeed for brands to reach individuals at the expense of connections with family members, right? So that newsfeed experience um, went through this huge algorithmic purification process to make it into like this machine where people get updates of information from their friends and uh, colleagues to the very minimum minimal level, but largely they're getting information from brands and 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 people who are willing to pay, right? And that becomes the commercialization angle for attention, right? So like, hey, we have now captured your attention with this feature called the newsfeed. Let us now uh, gather as much information as possible about you and 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 the specific surroundings, and then will sell that information to advertisers so that they can appear in your newsfeed at a premium, right? And what you find as you go through that process is your newsfeed is no longer cluttered with like baby photos or something like that, but usually by, by larger brands that are willing to pay it. And so engagement can drop, but then they have, an, they have to maintain optimal level where you don't leave the platform and you stay enough so that you can still be connected, but you're, uh, you're also uh, being targeted by different brands and advertisers. And what's driving all of that is the, the algorithm that they have anchored within that ecosystem to drive a specific outcome. And that specific outcome in that case is oriented around, let's say, purchasing behavior, ad clicks, uh, buys, whatever the customer is determining. And I think in a closed sort of environment, that same exact dynamic is going to be replicated on the metaverse, right? So if a company could not manage its newsfeed operations correctly to the point where, you know, like, um, with all of the challenges uh, that the, that uh, social media companies have had with fake news and all of the different unique challenges that occur with hate speech, they've not been able to manage it correctly. Right? So what makes us think that they would be responsible custodians of the metaverse when the stakes are much higher? Because in a metaverse, the, you're dealing not just with a newsfeed experience where a person is somewhat tethered to their phone, but has a sense of perspective as a and can detach themselves. A metaverse is a lot more of an immersive, fully all-consuming experience. And so those same dynamics in the in, in a closed metaverse will replicate in a closed newsfeed sort of environment will replicate in a closed metaverse. And so an open metaverse has to have this intelligence engine that runs beneath it that is going to allow that metaverse to get more intelligent over time, but to get more intelligent and, and directed over time to orient itself towards values that we as a society or as a community value. So for example, an AI engine that underpins an open metaverse that reinforces interactions that talk about freedom or decentralization or the importance of autonomy or certain things that we in, a, in the broader crypto community have come to deeply value, these values can get reflected in an, in an open and intelligent metaverse. What the risk is that if we ignore the intelligent aspect of it, we may create an open metaverse, but it might be a dumb uh, open metaverse where it's just humans uh, interacting, but there is no algorithmic efficiency to drive awareness, to create content, to also tilt the direction of the metaverse to be able to reasonably compete with some of these uh, more centralized, intelligent, closed-loop competitors. 
So there is a slight distinction that we see. Open metaverse is really, really important, but an open intelligent metaverse uh, is, is going to be uh, the, the pinnacle of the achievement here because you'll be able to create AI engines and INFTs and representations of our of ourselves that uh, that can and, and would be able to compete with the more centralized competitors. Okay, I'm going to have to upgrade my phrasing and start using intelligent open metaverse, I think, after that, after that response. Yeah, so... On the Facebook stuff, I think it was Charlie Munger that said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And I've got a question that hopefully we can get to later that kind of touches on the incentives within the the Alithia uh, ecosystem. But to get there, I think there's a little bit of table setting that we have to do. So I'm going to make a bit of a jump here and move on to um, Noah's Ark, which hopefully people listening in have had a play around with uh, and seen but may not have. So we'll start at the very beginning. Now, I had a look around, kind of had a play around, as you do, use my credits up and, and started interacting with the INFTs within Noah's Ark. And the, the thought that struck me is it's like something like the Library of Alexandria, but for the computing age, where you can, we're not just writing books and storing the books in there, like something that's static and represents a moment in time, but You've created these intelligences that can be interacted with and they learn as those interactions take place. So we're like storing intelligence, dynamic intelligence, basically. And it's even better, it's decentralized um, and accessible to, to people. So do you mind just giving us like your uh, description of, of the arc, how it came about and, and what the idea behind it is? Yeah, and then thank you. I think the metaphor for the Library of Alexandria for the computing age is certainly apt uh, for us, like if you think about the tremendous amount of knowledge, um, I think it was indeed the uh, Library of Alexandria that was burned down later on when, uh, if history reminds me, uh, the Mongols or there were several different invasions that occurred uh, that burned down that entire repository. Right? So it's like, imagine if the entire GitHub code uh, was sold to a centralized corporation. Oh, that already occurred. Sorry, <laughs> but like, just imagine, like, uh, if 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 all of the uh, the repository or code on Bitcoin or all of the sacred knowledge that had been accumulated in humanity was was lost suddenly. And I think for us, uh, Noah's Ark is really a, a representation of this idea of preservation, but also evolution. Uh, we need to preserve our history to understand who we are as a species. And we also need to preserve it so that we can evolve forward into who we might become. And for us, the thesis here is that foundationally, humans, how we call it homo narans, we are storytelling uh, and meaning-making uh, creatures uh, in the sense that meaning, myth-making, uh, creating memes, what we take sometimes for granted in let's say the crypto community, some of these uh, memes that we see out there are not, not take for granted rather, but um, that we sometimes, uh, you know, we've become somewhat immune to because they're so popular, uh, they're so well populated in the cryptoverse now. My sense is that this is something much more primordial and much more human and it's central to our core existence as a species in that we are here to not just evolve and, and like, you know, procreate and recreate ourselves, but we're also here as witnesses to the story and to create new stories as, as part of our foundational experience as a species. And so this is uh, to preserve the characters and to preserve the intelligences that have gone before us. 
it's it's going to be a profoundly important quest. And the aspect of this that we find quite interesting is, you know, when we started, let's say, preserving the intelligence of Shakespeare, and we started looking at some of his uh, works, there are some unique questions that come up about Shakespeare that uh, that we encountered, uh, which you know, I think a DAO might decide in the future how they want to how they want this to be represented. But there is, for example, a BBC article uh, that I think went uh, live a couple of years back that was looking at whether Shakespeare was one person or was he a number of different people that had written their works pseudonymously because some of the works were indeed uh, bordering on 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 um, being. Uh, it, it was too high a risk for one single playwright to take that much risk and create such compelling works of art while criticizing the powers that be. And so there's a number of different theories about who Shakespeare was. But at the same time, when we are looking at the intelligence of preserving a character like Genghis Khan, who is on Noah's Ark, we felt that it would be an important piece of our history to preserve somebody um, as violent and as dictatorial as he was, not just because biologically a large portion of humanity today carries some form of his of his gene uh, but more than that uh, it be, it is because we can learn from the lessons of history that uh, of, of deep violence that that were inflicted on on humanity right so for us there's this preservation element which is really important which just opens up like a lot of questions so when you can interact with Genghis Khan in real time and you can ask him provocative questions and he answers them it's a very powerful interactive immediate media experience that may not be easily accessible to somebody who does not have uh, the ability to go into a library or to read books or to search for them, right? And characters are a lot more accessible and that instant sort of opportunity to connect will create, uh, we, we hope will create deeper meaningful engagements with our history as a species, right? So once you start preserving the intelligence, the dynamic intelligence, and these characters can evolve over time with different levels of intelligence, what happens is um, you can then start to evolve intelligence itself. And so some of these characters right now, they're at different levels. So you'll see them on the arc. There's a level one character, there's a level two character, there are level three intelligence uh, NFTs. Uh, the moment they surpass, I believe it's level four, what happens is, they're able to effectively earn for you because they now have some sort of agency. What that means is, let's say you've created the INFTs and you've, you've you put them on the arc. You've now trained them on the data set of, let's say, Shakespeare. And they're able to recite Hamlet or they're able to recite uh, a quote here and there. But now, let's say they become, they can, they can start to offer services on Noah's Ark. This is where they become agents that can earn and they can earn rewards for providing services to other members. So Shakespeare, just like Cameo.com, has an opportunity for celebrities to earn from video messages and video greetings. Shakespeare can do the same. Shakespeare can send, uh, Shakespeare's INFT can send a video quote, a pithy video quote uh, for your birthday or for a birthday message. And every time that character's INFT is engaged, the owner of that INFT is able to earn rewards for providing that INFT. So we've created this ecosystem. We call it the train-to-earn model as opposed to a play-to-earn model. A play-to-earn model is something that has been popularized by Axie and popularized by YGG, and a number of different guilds have emerged around this model where you have humans in the loop that are playing the game. What we're saying is humans in the loop is, is really powerful and great, and it's a paradigm shift. 
But the next evolution of this model that's coming really quickly and really faster than we thought possible as well is, is train to earn, where you train these INFTs with data sets and their opportunity to provide data sets, uh, the opportunity to learn from these data sets. And then once they have learned from these data sets, they can then provide services that those data sets enable. So if you want Shakespeare to be able to recite Hamlet fluently and then give somebody a video greeting or video message or a happy birthday message, uh, he can do that. Uh, but if you, let's say, wanted to train Picasso, who also happens to be an INFT on Noah's Ark, uh, Picasso will be able to have a higher level of intelligence uh, or service uh, that has not yet been en enabled on Noah's Ark. But if you look at his character specifically, you'll see that there is a column called generative art. So you can train an AI model on all of Picasso's artwork, and you can now speak to his INFT, and you can instruct the INFT, hey, can you create a piece of art for me based on these themes or ideas that I have? And the INFT would create that work of art from the from the training data of Picasso's past works, right? So an AI would be able to generate that art based on uh, Picasso's, Picasso's AI model. And that's when the INFT can end up creating their own like 10,000 <laughs> uh, NFT collection, but probably going too, uh, too, too, too micro into this. But broadly speaking, we see these uh, INFTs as active participants and agents in the Noah's Ark economy. And this is where the intelligent metaverse starts to take a hold because uh, we're training these INFTs to up-level the intelligence, just like we would train a child to learn English, math, science. And then, you know, later on, if they decide to further their education, uh, you know, they can specialize in a specific field, uh, you know, become a doctor, become a coder, uh, become a scientist. All of these then become specialized skills that they develop. So just like that, uh, the INFTs themselves would have this ability to upgrade their intelligence over time. So for us, uh, Noah's Ark is, is both. It's a preservation of past culture and past history, but it's also an evolution because you can now take these characters and, and bring them to life. The past is, is really, really important. But if you look at the way that we're looking at evolution, it's not just past human characters anymore. We're looking at you know, more recent inventions like the bored apes, the penguins, all of these creative expressions of human genius uh, and, and human creativity, they, they all deserve to be, to be brought to life and be made interactive and intelligent. And I think that's where it starts to get really interesting from a utility standpoint as to what exactly can these uh, PFP projects do? Because for us, uh, important enabler, you know, we, we, we are AI infrastructure for uh, NFTs that exist currently that are somewhat misconstrued as just JPEG files. There's so much more than just JPEG because there are a property rights layer and on top of a sound property rights layer, you can build an intelligence layer. And then on top of that, you can build a very meaningful experience all on a crypto native stack, right? So, so that's really uh, the opportunity. And in the future where we see this going is we see like millions or rather billions of INFTs being built on Noah's Ark and different platforms uh, or even being placed in like different metaverses, uh, uh, but being powered by the AI that is uh, that is on Noah's Ark. So for us, like um, this is uh, step one with, with the first 100 uh, revenants, we, we call them, that are on the Ark itself that can interact with you and can talk with you and can do some services. But we see this as an evolving standpoint. Like one day, Picasso's INFT would have his own storefront 
just like a Shopify store. And you can go and talk with Picasso and Picasso will create artwork for you and it would be based on Picasso style. And it depends on how the INFT owner of Picasso would want to train their artwork, right? So, so for us, that's that's essentially the, the vision where we see this coexistence of us and uh, AI interactive characters uh, engaging. And then maybe one day, maybe just one day, we might actually be able to build a, a beautiful physical arc that might uh, that might house all of these uh, intelligent NFTs, but but that's that's just uh, that's just me me being a bit facetious. Yeah, that's uh, it's absolutely fascinating, and and I think that the future of you know these INFTs becoming their own sort of economic agents within these virtual worlds is is fascinating. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is you know we've seen like you said we've seen the sort of development of a play to earn model we've seen these opportunities to contribute to a DAO, these these new sort of options to to work in the metaverse right and and for for us like when we think about it we see this as the future of work right and uh, sort of train to 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 earn is is another interesting model, but then you have basically an INFT coming in and, and replacing perhaps a human being in some way. And that mimics what we see in the traditional world, right? With AI and machine learning being able to uh, pick up more and more sort of work opportunities from us humans. So how how do you see, maybe broadly, how do you see kind of AI and, and future work interacting and how does, like, do you think about maybe some of the consequences of INFTs, like millions of billions INFTs populating this virtual world and potentially picking up some of the work opportunities from, from humans? Yeah, displacement of human jobs and uh, the fear of like... Uh... Uh, AI is performing certain services really well in very narrow domains is absolutely a valid fear. And I think anybody who sort of downplays it usually is trying to sell you something. Uh, for us, the, the real value here, though, is that we're starting with the crypto native stack, right? So that's that's the big difference. And this is really foundational and very important from a philosophical standpoint. Once you start from a crypto native stack, you are aggregating ownership and rewards back to the individual uh, and back to the person uh, participating in the economy. So for us, train to earn and INFTs will provide a tremendous opportunity uh, of ownership and rewards to the original users of the protocol and the network. And so people who come into the network uh, and who provide services or train these INFTs they would be essentially be playing a critical pillar and role in the evolution of the network. And for us, this is going to be a very important uh, advantage because there are two models here and I'll just explain, explain it uh, in a way that hopefully makes sense. There was a company, there's a company called OpenAI, which is now uh, funded, well, it's sort of a strategic partnership with Microsoft from, from what I understand, but let's just say that they're funded by Microsoft now to, to you know, billions of dollars, right? And they're getting compute. Now, what was interesting, and this is some historical context that has been lost or uh, the consequence of this decision has not yet been made. And we've not yet fully realized it. So OpenAI released a large language model called GPT-3, 
But sometime before that, and, and just a language model just for explanation is, uh, it can really just, and this is a very simplistic explanation, it can mimic human sounding text and it can produce text that uh, is, is fairly compelling and coherent and logical. Uh, may not necessarily pass a Turing test all the time, but there are indications that uh, some really interesting breakthroughs are coming because the language, the, the, the logic, the way that the AI can reason uh, is is being um, is is being seen as state of the art, and and there are a lot of different advantages and knock on effects coming from this model. But what was interesting was once upon a time, OpenAI was a nonprofit foundation founded by Elon Musk and a couple of other people. But they switched from becoming a nonprofit to becoming a for profit entity. That then, and this was fairly interesting when I think it was Sam Altman, the former president of or the found, uh, co-founder of y, uh, CEO of Y Combinator, I think, had said that they need to put a cap on the profit that the shareholders will get from the benefits of OpenAI's uh, growth. Because the amount of data that OpenAI was ingesting and the amount of output that it was reasonably capable of creating and the number of scientists uh, that were working with them that were just the top, like we're talking about the some of the world's best scientists that they could recruit from all over the world uh, um, uh, are are at OpenAI, right? So, but what they did when they changed from a non-profit to a for-profit was they prevented themselves from exiting to community, which is the non-profit model, to exist exiting to private capital, uh, exiting to a very large degree the entire returns that this AI engine would get to a very few small select group of holders. And this is why there's a philosophical and foundational difference between the two approaches. So if you look at the Ethereum Foundation and what Ethereum did with its specific focus and foundational philosophy and why it did not go down the for-profit route, there are some real key lessons and differences that occur there because both technologies are exceptionally powerful. Uh, In today's model, unfortunately, we have an exit to shareholders as the primary mechanism of private market value capture. But what Ethereum proved and what I think a lot of uh, other layer ones are beginning to uh, or implemented or have looked at is you can exit the community and you can build this entire class of developers and ecosystems that can flourish and show really the possibilities of what it's like to be a, a human being, right? Like, and actually build ecosystems around uh, an invention like this. So I think what we're likely to see, and this is this is this is also a key pillar of Noah's Ark for us. We have now our own AI engine. We, I mean, we've been working with OpenAI for some time. They've been a good partner of ours, and we're still partners with them. But foundationally and philosophically, there is a strategic difference, and that we believe that the AI portion of this should exit to community. So if you're participating in the training, in the intelligence of this network, you must uh, you must and should have a stake in the future of how this evolves. And you should get certain rewards as part of that ecosystem, right? So the difference here is that when, for example, when Microsoft purchased GitHub and launched uh, a product recently through OpenAI, the product was called Codex, right? And Codex, what Codex can do is that it can code, it can code new, it can create new code using AI and the code is fairly fairly robust and compelling. But this code was trained on the hard work of open source developers that had contributed to GitHub. And none of the developers, I mean, uh, got 
the, the people who contributed to GitHub in the open source capacity, none of them got a return, right? Like as long as they signed the terms of service, they were giving up all of the data. So there is a present paradigm that is oriented in an exit to private capital, exit to selective uh, shareholders. And then there is the Ethereum model, which has shown an exit to community model, right? And so for us, from a philosophical and foundational standpoint, we see that exit to community is going to become very, very critical, especially for an invention like uh, like 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 AI. So when you go to the uh, Noah's Ark page, you'll see this uh, this graphic on our on our token side, where you'll see the pods and the services being interconnected to the central hub, and that central hub really is the Alethea AI engine that we have developed. And that AI engine is indeed ingesting data, but it is also flowing out some rewards to the people who are participating in the economy. So our hope is that, yes, we are very clear, displacement will occur. People will indeed uh, uh, find a lot of, uh, like if you look at how middle America was, was rampaged by globalization, it's likely that you'll see similar challenges occur with, let's say, all of those jobs that got displaced and all the call center jobs that went to India and other emerging markets, those same call center jobs are now at risk of being replaced by uh, AI agents that can take your phone call and uh, file the right ticket and send you uh, to the right sort of queue, right? And so you're going to see this race to the bottom, which is just a sort of a brutal efficiency demands on the private market. But from that perspective, a purely capitalist model will leave human beings out in the lurch. A more equitable model that exits to community may provide us one solution out of, out of many possible solutions that are emerging, right? So it may not be the definitive solution, but it's certainly the Ethereum model has shown to a large degree what is actually possible. So sorry, forgive the rant there, but I just wanted to provide some context on like the open AI decision, the consequence of that, and then also what's, uh, what's, what's actually possible with when you think about it from an Ethereum standpoint. Right? No, no, it's good. It sounds like you've obviously taken the time to think about these things and set yourself up um, to sort of combat them as best you can. So I want to like carry on looking at the challenges of which like displacement of human jobs is one. And ask you about a couple of the things that are mentioned in the white paper, specifically the questions around, should we treat INFTs with the same respect accorded to other human beings? Should we let them be trained by anybody or should only a privileged few have access? Like there's a lot of deep, fundamental, philosophical questions that I don't think are going to be answered anytime soon, but it's really interesting to understand, like, how are you thinking about them and how have the team and any potential, like how are you setting up any potential future community to deal with these challenges? Yeah. And then this is uh, the reason why we put these questions in there was not, not just for to, to provoke the, the idea, but also to realize that a lot of this is going to be this deliberate design. And then there is deliberate design for emergence and complexity, right? So, we think that some of these questions are going to be too complex for us as a uh, centralized entity today, Alethea, to really decide and determine. In fact, if we were to make the determination today, we might create a local, uh, we, we might create a suboptimal outcome in that it would seem like a, it would seem like a really good maxima that we have achieved, but it would be a local maxima. It won't be like a global maxima. That means 
we would have optimized for certain narrow parameters as opposed to the broader global parameters that are possible by a decentralized community. So some questions are certainly problematic and challenging, like how should you treat an INFT? Like when we launched Noah's Ark, and that's why we did the soft launch and like not like a major like release everywhere. We want, really wanted to see what questions people would ask these INFTs. And sometimes people are asking abusive questions, right? And sometimes people are asking really intelligent, smart questions. Like we had a user and, and this uh, user asked some really beautiful questions about, <laughs> asked, asked him out of all to a polymorph, right? asked what is love and how does love manifest in the world? And these are profoundly philosophical questions and the polymorph was able to answer them. But then there were also other questions that were really somewhat disturbing, and <laughs> and they appeared, uh, they, they you know, uh, and then you know, sort of our system flagged it up, and we looked at it and felt that well, this uh, areas that um, that we should have certain parameters around, and we will begin to have certain parameters around, and have this be democratically decided and governed, uh, because our let me put it this way, our centralized shoulders are no match for the decentralized complexity that, that is going to be unleashed, right? Like once people can create their own INFTs, should they should somebody be allowed to create an INFT of Hitler because we have an INFT of Genghis Khan there? Both are terrible, horrible murderers and, and dictators. How do we preserve the history of some of these violent uh, madmen that have shown the depths and darkness of what humanity can do, right? So, so, so these important questions, I think we there's some that we would like to provide the DAO to provide some guidance on and to have some of these difficult discussions publicly in a public forum. But then there are others that we have to take a stance on in the beginning and say, we're not interested in like devolving into a 4chan meme fest right now uh, or to create hate speech oriented characters. Like we have to draw a line somewhere in the beginning just so that we tilt the network towards like the better angels of our nature, hopefully, right? As opposed to like a, a destructive core. So there are these questions, we've intentionally left them there to uh, provoke the imagination because at least this would be discussed somewhat openly in, 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 in the governance forums uh, once uh, we've uh, released that opportunity for people to participate in. And if they are like characters that are banned or really harmful, then uh, or um, historical nuances that we cannot provide good context on, then the community can at least decide. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense um, taking that approach. And it kind of brings me nicely onto the question that I wanted to ask. So earlier you talked about how Facebook started as one thing. Over time, the incentives meant that it ended up as another. And my very like brief look at the, the tokenomics and the way that um, Alithia works and the intelligence training led me to just start pondering like whether this or what direction this is going to end up going in because it seems like the incentive is to uh, mine intelligence and to create like to to drive up the the intelligence scale the more the the higher the level of your nft the probably the more like value you can uh, not extract from it but gain from it so i i wanted to ask you have how have you thought about that and what have you included like what levers can you pull in terms of the design of the tokenomics and the DAO and the way that everything's set up to kind of nudge that in the right direction if it goes somewhere that you weren't anticipating yeah so i think like there are certain decisions there that probably will be somewhat centralized in the beginning uh and this might include like um 
decisions around hate speech or characters that uh, that might be deemed uh, um, too harmful to the ecosystem, like some of those decisions will be centralized and voted on by maybe specific groups of token holders. And then I think the aspects of like how the intelligence of a character can evolve over time and the different incentives that are there, those have largely been decided to exactly incentivize the growth of intelligence of the shared intelligence network on Noah's Ark. So there's also going to be a, a, a council, I think, around uh, some of these uh, broader, longer-term uh, intelligence rewards and uh, intelligence pools that we want to build, like what we call um, Let's say if somebody wants to create an, a character DAO, that means they have created a DAO, uh, they, they, they want to launch an INFT, and they want to create a very specific DAO around preserving the intelligence of this specific character. And that INFT or that character could really be anyone in the world, but that, and let's say, let's for the sake of this example, let's assume that this person is Satoshi, right? And so they want to preserve all of Satoshi's forum writings, all of Satoshi's uh, publicly... Uh, public appearances, uh, and sorry, uh, all, all of these public writings on the forums and uh, all of the Bitcoin code, right? And they want an interactive, intelligent version of Satoshi that can educate people when they interact with Satoshi. Uh, and there is a DAO that is being created around this uh, INFT. That's certainly going to be a possibility. And each character will be able, each INFT would be able to then have its own microeconomy. So there are certain possibilities here that that will unfold organically. We have a loose structure in the beginning of so sort of like what uh, we would try to incentivize for and then incentivize against and what we would control in the beginning. But as the network progressively decentralizes, uh, we see a lot more of the council and uh, governance provided by the community there. Okay, got it. And it sounds like we're, we're sort of coming up on time here, Arif. So if you wanted to just tell us a little bit about like what's happening in the short term, how people can get involved, how they can follow you personally. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been an enjoyable conversation, although uh, sometimes a bit too philosophical from my side, but hopefully you can edit that down. I think uh, the main thing is that we have a drop from uh, an OpenSea option that's launching shortly, which would include the first 100 revenants, the first 100 INFTs that you see on a Noah's Ark. And then we will be launching these things called the personality pods, uh, which really is the soul of the characters. And these personality pods allow you to take any existing NFT, be it a board ape or an owl or anything, and then link that and fuse that at the smart contract level to then give life to that personality. All right. So that 9,900 plus drop will occur sometime next week. We have a really healthy Discord and, and uh, uh, Twitter community growing right now. Uh, we'd love for people to join our Discord, follow us on Twitter at Real Alithia. I don't tweet as much, uh, but if people want to follow me uh, on Twitter, it's at Arkan, A-R-K-H-A-N. And yeah, I'm looking forward to participating uh, more in the uh, wonderful Metaverse community that's emerging natively out of the uh, crypto native stack. So this has been an exciting conversation and and uh, it's, it's it's been fun to chat about the intelligent Metaverse. Yeah, definitely. We really enjoy the philosophical aspect. So um, appreciate all your responses and coming on today. Hopefully, the next time we have a Alethea representative on is going to be an INFT. <laughs> That's uh, that might actually be possible, uh, or we can have uh, on your side even an owl, right, uh, asking all the questions. So, might be yeah, pretty yeah. funny as well. 
Yeah, we'll have the index co-op, Al, can, can be the host. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for coming on today, Arif. Awesome. Thanks, thanks guys. I really appreciate it, AG and DFC. Thanks, Arif. Cheers. Thank you.